Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday, and welcome to another edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. As you know, if you've been listening throughout this week, Al's been uh, off the mic because he's been tied up with the Ave Maria Radio Pledge Drive and uh, continue to invite you to support whatever your local Catholic radio station may be. Uh, We enjoy partnering with all of you in this work of the new evangelization. We will be hearing a commentary from Al today. Uh, What can Nathaniel Hawthorne teach us about the church? I think most of us probably know Hawthorne from high school if you read read the Scarlet Letter, but of course he's got other works as well. And... In uh, this one, he's gonna, Al's going to look at a short story that Hawthorne wrote called The Birthmark. And what lessons can we learn about that? This is a, a short story written almost, you know, over 150 years ago. Uh, what does that have to say to us today? Al's going to be exploring that uh, in just a few minutes. And then later on in this hour, we ask if Jesus was a person of interest. He's certainly an interesting person, but uh, our guest is uh, Detective J. Warner Wallace, who... You know, he's a cop. He's got a little bit different way of looking at the world. And he once heard about uh, Jesus in a, in a sermon, and he's skeptical because he said, you know, I've worked in you know, these crime scenes where there's no body. And uh, how, what, what, what would that, how does he respond to hearing the, the gospel message? Could the historical life of Jesus be investigated the way a cold case murder is? Uh, that's what he wanted to find out. And he joins us. He's the author of Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And uh, he's also a Dateline-featured homicide detective, popular national speaker, and best-selling author. And uh, he is our guest in the rest of this hour. And then, as you know, this Sunday kicks off the first week of Advent, and uh, we'll be getting ready for that in the second hour of today's program. Monsignor Charles Pope joins us with an Advent recipe for readiness, because uh, these first weeks of Advent focus more on the Lord's second coming in glory rather than his first coming in Bethlehem. Uh, gospel clearly states we must always be prepared at any hour we do not expect for the Son of Man to come. And that key word is ready. How shall we be ready? Uh, Monsignor Charles Pope joins us. And also we walk the path of prayer with Jesus with Brant Petrie. All that is coming up over the next two hours after this news break. Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 1st. It's the Feast of Edmund Campion. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The Holy See's Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Parolin will lead the Vatican's delegation to the COP28 Climate Conference in place of Pope Francis, who continues to recover from a lung infection. Parolin will deliver the remarks originally prepared for the Pope on Saturday. The following day, he will preside over the inauguration of the Interfaith Pavilion. The Israel-Hamas war is raging once again after the truce deal between the two ended. The Israeli military announced today that it has resumed combat in the Gaza Strip, claiming Hamas violated the truce and fired a rocket towards Israeli territory. Israeli airstrikes have been reported in Gaza City, and drones have been reported over southern Gaza. Retired United States Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor is dead at the age of 93. The Supreme Court said O'Connor's cause of death was related to a complication from advanced dementia and a respiratory illness. 
O'Connor was the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court and was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981. And New York Republican George Santos is no longer a member of Congress. The House voted to expel Santos this morning in an historic 311 to 114 vote, ending his chaotic tenure in Congress. More than 100 Republicans voted in favor of removing Santos, who is now the sixth lawmaker to ever be pushed out of the chamber. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. I'm Al Cresta. Nathaniel Hawthorne, one of the most respected American novelists, he was born 1804, died 1864, roughly a year before the end of the Civil War. Uh, Hawthorne uh, had um, a great reputation as a novelist, uh, but I want to spend, I don't want to go over his contributions to American literature. I want to talk about one of his short stories. He was interested in uh, morality. He was very interested in religion, and his works have much uh, insight into uh, morality and religion. But I want to go to a short story of his, which I don't think many people uh, are familiar with. It's called The Birthmark. And I think it actually speaks to us today as we've become so aware of uh, shortcomings within uh, institutional Catholicism. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. The story has uh, Eilmer, A-Y-L-M-E-R. He's a brilliant and recognized scientist and philosopher. But he turns from his career and all of his wonderful experiments to marry the beautiful Georgiana. She's physically perfect, except for a small red birthmark in the shape of a hand on her cheek. Small though, very small. Now as the story goes on, Eilmer becomes increasingly obsessed with this imperfection on Georgiana's cheek. And he can't help but focus on it. One night, he dreams of cutting the birthmark out of his wife's cheek, kind of removing it, like scraping the skin uh, off an apple. And then, realizing that the birthmark is deeper still, continuing all the way down to her heart. When he wakes up, he doesn't remember the dream until Georgiana asks, what the heck were you talking about while you were sleeping last night? And then Ilma remembers the details of the dream. Georgiana declares that she would rather risk her life having the birthmark removed from her cheek than to continue to endure uh, Ilma's distress that comes upon him when he now sees her. The following day, Eilmer deliberates and then decides to take Georgiana to the apartments where he keeps a laboratory. He (laughs) glances at her, uh, hoping to console her, but finds himself shuddering violently when he sees her imperfection. His reaction causes her to faint, and when she awakens, He treats her warmly, comforts her with some of his scientific concoctions. But when he attempts to take a portrait of her, 
the image is blurred except for the birthmark which shows again his disgust for it his experiments uh, continue on and uh, he describes he's having some success uh, but he begins to question how she is feeling she's beginning to suspect that Eilmer in fact has been experimenting on her the entire time without her knowledge and consent and one day she follows him into her laboratory his laboratory and when he sees her there he accuses her of not trusting him and saying that uh, having her birthmark in the room will sabotage all of his scientific efforts and her reaction is to profess complete trust in him but uh, simply asks him to inform, inform her of his experiments he agrees and reveals that his current experiment will be his last attempt to remove the birthmark Georgiana vows to take the potion regardless of any danger it might pose to her and soon after Eilmer brings her the potion and he demonstrates its effectiveness before she takes it by rejuvenating a diseased plant with just a few drops and she says I don't need uh, proof uh, I trust you and Georgiana drinks the concoction promptly falls asleep Eilmer watches and rejoices because guess what the birthmark fades little by little just when it's nearly gone Georgiana wakes up and looks at her image in the mirror the birthmark has almost completely faded she smiles and then informs Eilmer that in fact she is now dying once the birthmark fades away completely Georgiana is dead this uh, friend of mine Albert Fada uh, told me of this uh, short story uh, when we were going on the, the first um, uh, Good News Marriage Cruise back in January of 2020 and uh, I've been fascinated by this story ever since because it reminds me so much of what's happening in the church today there's no doubt that we have seen some deformities uh, in the uh, personnel uh, of the church and that these deformities certainly do exceed the tiny birthmark from Nathaniel Hawthorne's story nevertheless I'd be lying to you if I didn't give you my impression that much of what is circulating right now in criticism of the Catholic Church very much an echo chamber uh, louder and more frequent denunciations of problems that in fact we've seen and been aware of for a long time uh, there have been calls for our bishops to act more effectively and with less ambiguity that these are not new and those calls are welcome but I'll point out that we've just seen in particular areas of American Catholicism some real positive changes and I I do not think uh, enough credit is given for these changes 25 years ago Archbishop Beekline of Indianapolis released a report that listed 80 percent of our catechetical textbooks had serious doctrinal deficiencies he had been commissioned to undertake this study by the uh, US bishops 
And his report, I remember this because we uh, were actually publishing a Catholic newspaper at the time called Credo. And so this story came up while we were publishing the paper, and we certainly covered this in Credo. 80% of catechetical textbooks, he said, had serious doctrinal deficiencies. Now, this was four, roughly four years after the catechism was available to us in English, the universal catechism. And the archbishop vowed that uh, these corrections would be made. Now, my first thought was, well, who the heck's responsible for the textbooks getting to this terrible level, right? Well, we don't know and probably never will know. The textbooks have been uh, wonderfully changed. We have the best catechetical materials that American Catholics have ever had right now. Uh, they're not only more thoroughly um, orthodox, but they are uh, much more applicable. Uh, they're colorful. Uh, and you, you get some sense of this. Take, I mean, look, for instance, at the creative things that have been done by people like Jeff Cavins, you know, with the uh, great American... Uh, Bible course, and that's just one. Everywhere you go, you see uh, Catholics involved in creative, uh, catechetical work, innovative, uh, in no way revising the teaching of the church, but in every way trying to make that teaching more plausible and demonstrating its importance and applicability. You know, we learned recently what many of us had suspected, that 70% of American Catholics don't believe in transubstantiation. Now, whether that number is entirely accurate or not, I don't know. I don't know how many people think about words like transubstantiation. But the point is, we even know from our own experience that many, many Catholics do not know and do not appreciate what the Church actually teaches. So in response to this problem, Bishop Andrew Cousins of uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, has undertaken a multi-year task of Eucharistic revival. He's uh, developed a collection of cooperating organizations, uh, including EWTN, Ave Maria Radio, um, the, the Steubenville, uh, uh, Ave Maria University, uh, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, Focus, uh, Word on Fire. You can go down the list and you'll see one after another uh, organizations that we tend to call dynamically orthodox. So this is going to happen, um, and I'm confident that this is going to have a significant impact among American Catholics. Um, as I've said before, this week I'm speaking to an exceptionally bright and vigorous group of college-age Catholics up here in Boyne Mountain. And um, I'm delivering talks on why Catholics and Protestants disagree. So I've focused on the nature of the church. I have focused on the nature of salvation, the nature of the sacraments, the relationship between Mary and her son, the problems that come from separating scripture from tradition or faith from works, or especially the problem of separating Jesus, head of the church, from his governance of the church, his body on earth. This is one of the great Catholic distinctives, that we actually believe that there is a mystical union between Christ and his church, and that Jesus is in fact extended through time and space, through his body, the church. Jesus, in the ascension, 
didn't take his hands off the church. Uh, he guaranteed, because he had set up the apostles and their successors, he guaranteed that he would be ultimately governing the church through, through his body on earth. We should never forget that. Because once we forget that, we cease to be Catholic. And we become, like so many well-intentioned Protestant revivalists, reformers uh, in the history of Christianity, who believed that they could hive off on their own and uh, basically start a new church. It's absurd, as absurd to do that as it would have been for some Hebrew to run off and decide, I think I'm going to start a 13th tribe here and correct all those problems with the priests and the prophets and the kings. Uh, with the mountain of criticism that is often directed towards the church, some of it deserved, some of it exaggerated, some positively manufactured and invented, we are in the dangerous position of being to sound not like Catholics, but like Protestants who have forgotten whose church this ultimately is. Remember, we teach that our bishops, that's right, those men who are in the flesh that we're in relationship with, with, we teach that they are in fact successors of the apostles. Doesn't guarantee perfection, but it ought to guarantee respect. Connection with Teresa Tomio. The AP is now saying that news people cannot refer to pregnancy resource centers as pregnancy resource centers or crisis pregnancy centers. They have to refer to them as anti-abortion centers because we're misleading the public by saying that they're offering resources, apparently. It is about consistently putting forth a culture of death, do anything you want sexually, being extremely woke every time you turn around. This is more proof that all they care about is their own agenda. And they're doing this to their own demise. If you look at the ratings, for example, of CNN, if you look at the subscription rates, right, of various newspapers, whether it's online or still hard copy in in print, continuing to decrease. And yet they do not care because it's about the agenda. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. When did Jesus reveal the existence of the Holy Spirit? Though the Lord alluded to the Spirit in speaking to Nicodemus and to the Samaritan woman, the Catholic Catechism tells us Jesus did not fully reveal the Holy Spirit until he himself had been glorified through his death and resurrection. Little by little, nevertheless, Jesus did also refer to the Holy Spirit even when teaching to the multitudes, as when he says his own flesh will be food for the life of the world. When the hour for his glorification arrives, Jesus actually promises the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth, the other paraclete, says the Catechism, will be given by the Father in answer to Jesus' prayer. He will be sent by the Father in Jesus' name. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. 
That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit streetevangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Jay Warner Wallace, is a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, a detective who's uh, been a popular national speaker, best-selling author. One day, he was uh, listening to a pastor talk about Jesus and wondered why anyone would think Jesus was a, quote, person of interest. He was skeptical of the Bible, but he'd investigated several no-body homicide cases in which there was no crime scene, no physical evidence, no victim's body. Could the reality of Jesus be investigated in the same way? Well, the result is an outstanding book called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. Jim, good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Let's let's talk about that moment uh, when you were sitting in church listening to this pastor. Uh, where were you at spiritually at that time? Oh boy! Uh, well, I was I was at about zero. I mean, it looked <laughs> like I was I was uh, I just didn't know anything that I thought was worth knowing. I, honestly, I was raised in Southern California here in Los Angeles County, and I just didn't have any contact with uh, Christians that I thought, in my own way of perceiving things, as positive. Right? I mean, a lot right. of times we. I would meet people. I was working as an undercover at the time, and I had been in, uh, working in law enforcement for probably close to 10 years. And, and I would even meet some uh, officers who said they were Christians. And But if I asked them, well, why do you think this is true? They weren't really able to tell me, why, aside from their own personal experiences. Right. Everyone's got a personal experience. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other group I would meet would, would be like the people who were taken to jail, many of whom would tell me that they were Christians. Right. right. And I thought to myself, this is not some... I mean, to me... This was utterly absurd and not even worth something, uh, I sh- not worth my investigation. As a matter of fact, I had a, a co-worker, my first training officer, he wrote to me last week on an email, and he says, you know, I can't believe that you're a Christian now, given that 
when I knew you, um, if I even said anything about Jesus, you would just mock me. And I thought, well, I don't remember I was being quite that bad, but I guess I was. But that's really the state I was in when I walked into that church for the first time. Yeah. Uh, why person of interest? Why that phrase? Well, that's a title that really has been used in the last couple of decades, and really, I think, most commonly once we started working some terrorist, uh, the National Investigation of Terrorist Plots. But but really what it's, it usually refers to is somebody who is either potentially a suspect, but maybe you don't have enough evidence yet to file a case, so you're still working on that person. He's your best candidate, but he's not yet at the level of a fileable uh, suspect. Mm-hmm. Or it's somebody maybe who, you know, you don't have any clue yet who, who to look for, but you know there's this significant witness who could maybe point you in the right direction. Well, sometimes that first domino in the series of dominoes will be called that person of interest, like where we're going to start. But it's, I'm using it in this context because that first pastor, he pitched Jesus in a way that I could catch him. He, he said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived, and as a kind of a prideful I thought that that's not true. Is it that true? And, and how would I know if that's true? So I bought a Bible just to see what was so smart about Jesus. Yeah. Did, um, did, the book, though, really focuses on what we would know about Jesus if the New Testament had, was destroyed. Yeah, and that was really... I, I take that approach. Yeah. Only because... If you don't know me in those days, and I was 35 when I walked into that church, um, and I had a ton of experience in interviewing witnesses, investigating cases, claims about the past, and I just thought, uh, you know, I'm not really um, convinced this guy is of any importance, and I don't think I could trust what's written in the New Testament. I, I was somebody who said, I don't want to hear your scripture, I don't want to read your scripture, everyone's got scripture, I'm not interested in your fairy tales. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you were somebody like me who said, you know, I'm not really interested in reading through Christian Scripture, to, to, I don't trust it. Well, it turns out that you could learn something about Jesus of Nazareth. I think you could actually make a case for his historicity and his deity just from the stuff that's outside the New Testament. In other yeah. words, I've worked a bunch of these nobody murders where you have a, a guy who kills his wife and claims that she ran off, and, and everyone believes him, and so they don't even take photographs of the scene. And four or five years go by, she's never returned, and now they're working as a homicide, and there's no evidence from her crime scene, not a single photograph ever taken, and she, her body's never even been recovered. Well, how do you make that case in front of a jury? Well, you tell them, hey, on the day that she vanished, if this is a murder, uh, it's like a bomb went off. And, and there's a fuse that precedes every bomb, and when that bomb gets detonated, there is shrapnel all over the blast radius. So I'll tell you what. I will tell you what happened on the day of the detonation by simply tracing the fuse and examining the fallout. That fuse and fallout approach is how we solve no-body cases, where we have not a single piece of evidence from the crime scene. So I thought, well, look, if if I don't trust what's in the crime scene, the New Testament, let's just scrap that for a second. Let's take a look at the fuse and fallout of history and see if it would make the same case. You've got. I think it does. You've got three aspects to the fuse, right? You've got the, mm-hmm. the cultural, the historical, the prophetic. Uh, yeah. Let let's go. Let's stay with that. And and I love I love by the way I love I love the metaphor you're using. This is it's the first time I've ever heard it, so I love it. So <laughs> keep going. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is just trying to figure out like what in history would we count as a fuse, and I think you'll see that there are several kinds of fuses that are burning and are twisted together. And one of those is just the cultural fuse. You know, it turns out that if you want the story of Jesus to have legs to be able to move around the world, 
you have to kind of wait until a period of time in which the mechanism and the infrastructure is in place from an empire that actually now has controlled the entire area of the Mediterranean, the known, unquote, world, so to speak, and has put the infrastructure in place so you now have roads, a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana, postal services, a common language, a common writing uh, alphabet, all of these things happen to be in place by the first century. And I kind of demonstrate that by tracing all of the empires that preceded the Roman Empire, and then what is happening within the Roman Empire that gives you this unique opportunity, this window of opportunity in the first century. At the same time, of course, that there is a prophetic um, a fuse that's burning based on all of the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the Messiah. And even Daniel gives you a kind of a window opportunity from the reconstruction of, of Jerusalem to the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple. His prophecy in chapter 9 of Daniel kind of gives you a small window of opportunity as well. And there's also, of course, a spiritual uh, fuse burning, because the ancients believed in all kinds of mythologies, which do bear some resemblance. They all have common expectations of what God would probably be like just like Paul noticed on Mars Hill. And so these folks were all worshiping their gods, and these periods of worship have limits. Like, not, not all these gods are worshipped into the Common Era, but it turns out there's an overlap in which the most number of ancients are worshiping gods with common expectations that, by the way, are met the most robustly by Jesus of Nazareth. And when you put those three fuses together, you'll see there's a small window of opportunity of about 100 years from about 29 B.C. to about 70 A.D. And who, of course, stands right in the middle of that 100-year period is Jesus of Nazareth. And so if you didn't know why we call this the Common Era, or we call it A.D., well, you could determine that just from that fuse, because there's one catalyst that stands in the middle of the uh, little red zone of opportunity based on the fuse, and that is Jesus. Uh, you're well aware that there are those today who will say, well, Jesus, uh, you know, in the history of religions, uh, was not so distinct. I mean, we have other uh, saviors out there. Uh, perhaps the, uh, the apostles simply uh, put together a profile of a savior uh, who's really no more than part of the common mythology of the ancient Mediterranean world. Yeah, so there there definitely are common expectations. So I went back and read, and I've listed in the book, all of these mythologies and what they have in common with each other. And there are 15, as I count them. You could probably add as many as 18 or as few as 10. But I put 15 of the common expectations. They are very broad. So, Al, they don't even end up being similar. So, for example, uh, most of these mythologies will posit that the god will enter into his creation in an unnatural or supernatural way. Well, that's what Jesus does, but some of these gods will jump out of the side of a mountain, will be born out of the thigh of another god. I mean, the stories are very, very different, but they are supernatural. So they have something in common. But only in the most broadest, and the, these are the common expectations. It's reasonable for the ancients to assume that a supernatural being would enter into his creation in a supernatural way. That's a common expectation. That's what's so beautiful about it. It's as C.S. Lewis says, these are the myths, the, the, the stories about God from the minds of men, whereas Jesus is the myth from the mind of God. It's the true myth based on what we call true things, you know, mm-hmm. the reality. And so if you look at Jesus... If God was going to, uh, uh, don't you think that humans, designed in the image of God, would have common thoughts about the God who designed them? Sure. If we do. 
Yeah. Even today we yep. do. Yep. Even the people who are unchurched today have common expectations of God in 2021. Right. So, right. so sure enough, what does God do? He finds that one opportunity when all of these mythologies are being worshipped simultaneously to enter into his creation and actually personify all of... By the way, no mythology bears more than about ten of these common attributes. <laughs> Some have as little as six. Only Jesus of Nazareth has all fifteen. He is the most robust manifestation of our expectations. And by the way, if you think the ancient gospel authors trying to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah would then borrow from every possible non-Jewish pagan myth to make their case, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a the right way to go. There's probably a better way to go than that, because you're just offending the group you're trying to convince. And that's why I don't think that's a reasonable explanation to begin with. Uh, you take a look at the messianic expectation of uh, the Jewish world of the first century. Um, this is not the New Testament, so it's, 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 it's evidence for you, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, talk to me about messianic prophecy and fulfillment. What is it that was so compelling in those uh, passages uh, from the prophets that made it clear that uh, Jesus was indicated. Yeah, and I think I, I'm very, very picky about these, because I don't think that some people are. I mean, there's two kinds of evidence in crime scenes. There's clear evidence, like a fingerprint. If you've got a good database, it'll mm -hmm. tell you who your suspect is before you ever knock on his door. And there's things like a button that may or may not belong to your suspect. You won't know until you meet him, and you've already identified him, and you can start to go through all of his clothing to see if he's missing a button. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two ways of looking at that. So one will give you the evidence uh, from the onset, will identify your suspect. The other only identifies your suspect in hindsight. So cloaked evidence is different than clear evidence. Well, the prophecies are very similar to this. There are some clear prophecies. But as I was listening as a new believer, there's a new investigator of, of Christianity, and I'm listening to people talk about how prophecy points to Jesus. Well, some of the prophecies they were pointing at were cloaked. I mean, I, I wasn't right. sure these, these authors were even talking about the Messiah at all. <laughs> I, I had the same David experience, about, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was just David talking about David. But here's what's interesting. The New Testament authors will still use those because they're cloaked. In other words, it's like, here's the button. Guess what? It happens to match the shirt of Jesus, and that's how they use them. Yeah. Oh, hold it there if you would, Jim. We'll come back. Got to take a quick break. We'll come back. My guest, uh, Detective J. Warner Wallace. Person of Interest, the name of the book, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. This is a, a great piece of work uh, in the field of apologetics. Uh, again, it takes a very different, very engaging approach. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com. 
where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom.com slash webinar. That's catholichom.com slash webinar. See you there. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it, it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Catholic family life is a liturgy. Liturgy is a word that means a public act of worship. And for Catholics, liturgy is an act of worship established by God and intended to heal the damage that sin does to our relationships with Him and each other. For instance, the liturgy of the Eucharist is God's way of restoring communion with Him and making communion with others possible. Well, when we bring that Eucharistic grace home by looking for little ways we can share Christ's sacrificial love with our family each day, we celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, the liturgy that helps God heal the damage sin tries to do in our homes, at the very root of human relationships. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Jay Warner Wallace, a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective who's done a great work in the, the field of apologetics uh, in defense of the faith. It's called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And we're talking, he's got a lot of experience in no-body homicides, and he's using, uh, again, some of the methodology uh, that he used professionally to look at the uh, person of Christ, but without reference to the New Testament. And before the break, we were talking about uh, prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, and uh, he was comparing 
some of those prophecies to uh, clear evidence uh, like uh, fingerprint or DNA, and some of those prophecies are more like cloaked evidence, you know, things like a button you would find at the scene of the crime. You're not sure who it belongs to, but as you get closer to your suspect, you begin. it makes sense, and it confirms uh, other uh, uh, evaluations that you have. Give me an example, if you would, Jim, of uh, clear prophecy as opposed to cloaked prophecy. So what we tried to do in the book is, is I, I went back and I read through all of those, you know, sometimes people say, oh, there's 300 prophecies that point to, to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Well, if you break those down and kind of put them in groups, uh, in terms of either clear or cloaked, mm-hmm. and I, I can tell you that we've got, I've got a friend who is part of a major ministry here in Southern California who was kind of deconstructing his faith, and one of the things he was having trouble with was that he said the New Testament authors are constantly using prophecies that even Jews don't consider to be messianic, right? right? I mean, so he's saying, why would... I mean, this, these don't make it. That they're, they're reading them in such a way and abusing the text in right. such a way as to make Jesus the Messiah. Yeah. And so this is not unusual to have somebody say this. So, so you'll see that in the book. I try to. It's very visual, right? Like I'm a visual person in front of a jury. This is important to me. There's over 400 illustrations in the book, and you'll see that in this section on prophecies. For example, if I'm going to get to those psalmists who are talking about the coming Messiah, like David and Solomon and Asaph, who are writing between about 1016 about 1015. Uh, BC, you will see that the vast majority of what we would call messianic prophecies in that grouping are really cloaked. They're not clear. That, that clearly, and I've got a diagram that shows this, about one-sixth of the, of the prophecies we would typically list in that period of time are really clear. They would say that God is he called God's Son, He is known for righteousness, righteousness, He's executed without His bones being broken, He doesn't see the gain, He makes known the path of life. At the same time, though, you'll see also some cloaked prophecies, where it appears that he is quiet before his accusers and stripped of his clothing, and his executors will cast lots. Now, a lot of times you've heard those prophecies being used as clear prophecies of the coming Messiah that match Jesus. But if you look at the context in which you know his, he uh, is stripped of his clothing and his executors will cast lots, you will see it's not as clear as you might think. Right. It's actually more cloaked. But mm-hmm. it's still fair for the New Testament author to use it when making the case, That's the right. same way it would be fair to use a button. You wouldn't just toss the button and say, don't bother photographing that button. It'll have no future value to us. Well, mm-hmm. no, actually, the button's going to be part of the case as well as the fingerprint. So what we do here, in the book, what I tried to do was to look at just for the sake of argument. Now, a lot of times people get um, sensitive about these issues, but I'm just doing it for the sake of argument. If we just tossed out all of the cloaked, and I'm trying to read in the text, I'm also looking at Jewish sources to see what do the Jewish people believe is messianic. If you just toss out the stuff that is cloaked for the sake of the argument, you still have enough, more than enough information from the clear prophecies to, to, to get a picture of Jesus that you ought to be able to recognize. So I'm taking the worst-case scenario, and you still have Jesus, Okay. And so I just want to show that. And what I did in the book, which I don't think I've seen anywhere else anyway, is instead of grouping the prophecies by, like, their type, like, this is about his birth, this is about the death of the Messiah, this is about the ministry of the Messiah. No, I I put them in the actual chronological order in which they are given. And here's why I did that, Al. I've always kind of wondered, like, why does Jesus come when he comes? And one of the reasons why Jesus comes when he comes is because, like, in any investigation of a suspect, you have to answer the what, when, why, how, where questions before you can answer the who question. There are six important questions to answer. But it turns out when you list out the prophecies in their time, 
you will see that really until you get to Malachi, you don't have enough information in the what, when, where, how, why uh, questions to answer the who question. Hmm. But as you go through the, the epic periods of time and prophecy, you'll see that you get clearer and clearer answers in those first five categories. So the who then... So for example, if Jesus shows up a thousand years earlier, and he says, hey folks, and then the writers of the Gospels say, hey, Jesus matches the prophecies. Well, there aren't enough prophecies in place yet to be able to make a convincing case from prophecy. Right. So you have to wait for all of these prophecies to happen in history, and then when this uh, Messiah shows up, you can now use prophecy to make a case. And this is part of what St. Paul means when he talks about Jesus uh, you know, coming in the fullness of time, yeah. which is an yeah. important part of chapter in your book as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that expression. I've always wondered, what does that even mean, the fullness of time? Right. Well, if you look at the fullness of the way that empires were laid out, and that window of opportunity, that Pax Romana. By the way, remember, it was during the Pax Romana in the Roman Empire, when we had 200 years of peace, that, that, the, that the, the, the government was able to shift its uh, spending from war to infrastructure, so that by the time it's done... The roads that Paul is going to walk on, which were not available to him 200 years earlier, are now available to walk to do these missions trips. The infrastructure was in place, so the message of Jesus, should it occur in that small red zone, now has legs. Yeah. One of the things you do in the book is you also take a look at, I don't know, evidences from uh, uh, culture. Uh, so you're taking a look at uh, uh, how Jesus dominates the bookshelves, for instance, and you compare right. his influence, uh, which again, uh, this is this is part of gauging his his impact. Uh, tell me how tell me how you arrange your thinking in this area of his impact on culture. So I was looking at this fallout, right? Like how, once he shows that explosive appearance of Jesus in history, something's going to follow. Like any bomb that explodes, if he's really who he said he was, I would expect a huge ripple in the water. And you'll often see people say, well, if Jesus hasn't, you know, if he was really who he said he was, wouldn't there be all kinds of people writing about him in the first century? Well, it turns out, if you know anything about the first century writings, there are a lot of people who are writing about Jesus in the first century now, especially by the time you get to the third century, and it becomes the, or the fourth century, it becomes the religion of the empire. You've got a broad collection, and I listed, of all the Christian and non-Christian authors who are saying something about Jesus. The number of voices that can be found on ancient manuscripts before the religion of the empire emerges in 325 is astounding, okay? So, so there's, it's, hard, it's hard to kind of miss that. Now, what I was looking for in the fallout are two things. Number one, what aspects of culture has this person of interest really had an impact on? How big is that impact? And two, from that impact, am I able to see the fingerprints of the person who caused the impact well enough to reconstruct his story? Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking for are those aspects of culture that, number one, huge impact, number two, left his fingerprints. And what you'll see in some unusual and unexpected places is that Jesus' fingerprints aren't everything. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, no one has been written about. No one dominates writing. If you were to search either the Library of Congress, or if you were to search Google Books, and just look for the name Jesus in titles, <laughs> you will find that nobody dominates, that no person of history, no historical figure, has ever been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> globally. That's an interesting uh, point. 
Yeah. Now, not only that, from those, of course, you can reconstruct the story. You'd have to destroy more than every New Testament. You'd have to destroy all those writings we talked about in the first four centuries. You'd have to destroy a, much of the classic literature that has come down to us. Uh, you have to destroy the dominance that he's had in all kinds of literature, fiction and nonfiction. And you'd even have to destroy those pieces of fiction in which the overarching story of Jesus as he's described in literature as a Christ figure, is found in the uh, uh, non, in the rather fictional creations of authors who who craft their their characters around the rough outline of Jesus. You'll see this. This is actually a genre of literature called Christ figuring, right. and you'll see this in many pieces. You, if, if you read all those books, you'd say, "Wow, it seems like all these characters have some similarities." And if you sketch those similarities out, guess what you're describing? You're describing Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So in the end, you have to destroy a lot more. That kind of impact is there's nobody else in the history of persons who's had that kind of impact on literature. So the question becomes, well, how, why is this guy? This guy's a nobody. This guy's a Jewish sage from the first century. You don't believe that Jesus is God. <laughs> right. He's just another guy. Right. Another guy in the first century. And if you look at all the people who were somebody in the first century, Jesus really doesn't make that list unless, of course, he's God. Yeah. But it turns out, of all those people in the first century who might account for this shift in our calendar, right, why we call this the first century, well, none of them have had any kind of historical impact like this little sage from this tiny corner of an insignificant town in the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. No, so how do we explain yeah, that? That's great. I mean, do you, you even go to the, the area of contemporary popular music, where it's just about everybody you can think of who's recorded in popular music is in the list of having had said something about uh, Jesus, whether it's Jackie Wilson yeah. or Van Morrison, oh, no. Bob that's Dylan, right. uh, who had a conversion experience back in the late 70s. Um, yeah, there's no doubt that nobody's been sung about more than Jesus of Nazareth, and that, and especially <laughs> in pop music. And yeah. We say, well, that's Western music. Well, to be honest, with, with the, like, like anything else, when you have technology like we have, all ideas are exported everywhere now. Right. There are no national boundaries when it comes to ideas and music, literature. These things now travel. And so this kind of influence, you know, is, is you could say the same thing. Look, he, he, it all started in, in, in Nazareth, okay? But from that one point, the entire world has been touched. Now, it may have taken a little longer. It may have taken some certain forms of technology. But music, Western music, is influencing music everywhere. If you don't think it is, I mean, this, every, you know, the Korean pop music would give you a good example of, of how far the genre travels. <laughs> right, and so right. it, this is the kind of stuff that, that uh, is amazing to me, that this person is the one who, ought, I think I made a list of all the top 100 artists. It ends up being about 150 artists, because you have three different lists, and there's some overlapping and some differences. But of all of those artists, I think only two had not sung a song about Jesus. It's amazing. And some of these are derogatory. So he's yeah, right, right. That's true. Or he's going to inspire you, but you're going to sing about him one way or the other. Yeah, you so. can't. You can't get away from him. Uh, That's right. Yeah, uh, you also do something in the this which I I liked. Um, you really took what, it, in the popular mind, anyways is an area where you don't expect to see the influence of Jesus, and that's the world of science. And uh, you've actually taken a look at the impact uh, he's had on the world of science and on those who have become fathers uh, of various disciplines, uh, you know, chemical uh, energetics or uh, galactic astronomy. Uh, no, it's true. I mean, I, we, were, we were shocked, actually. So we, this all started as I just want to show 
that, that, that yes, Christ followers have been in the sciences. Yeah. Well, when you start doing the research on this, you realize, oh, I had no idea, yeah. because I wasn't taught this in school. Right. So if you just say, hey, top um, scientists or natural philosophers in the first century, top, uh, you know, for every century, you will get a list, and these lists will have all kinds of people from all kinds of different cultures. But then you can kind of isolate and see, like, who's playing in these areas, Right. And so we started to collect these names, and that's not even easy to do because there's not a lot written in terms of, like, uh, textbooks that are out there. And if you're using online services, a lot of these online, even reliable online sources, have kind of scrubbed the Christian identity off the person you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. So it's really hard to identify the Christians, right? But we did. And then as we got about 950 of these, we realized, we, I said, you know, I'm starting to see this expression, father of this, we need to go back to all 100, 950 and look for that. And you will see that more Christians are fathers of scientific disciplines than any other group. Yep. Yeah, I'm with you. Jim, thanks. Uh, Great talking with you and a marvelous book. And I'm, I'm hoping, and I suspect it's going to get great distribution and readership. Uh, I hope we can talk again in the future. Thanks, Al. I so much appreciate you having me on. Again, Jay Warner Wallace, person of interest, why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children? Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Thanks for joining us over that uh, first hour. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on those conversations. We'll have uh, Detective J. Warner Wallace's book available for you in the online bookstore as well. Uh, In the next hour, we get ready for Advent. Monsignor Charles Pope joining us, an Advent recipe for readiness. 
and also Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus with uh, Dr. Brent Petrie. As we said, Advent's not officially underway, but will be underway uh, in a couple of days. Great opportunity for us to grow in our relationship with Christ. The path of following Jesus is ancient and storied spiritual tradition, yet many believers are not familiar with the three major forms of prayer and the three stages of spiritual growth that exist to bring them closer to God. We explored that with Dr. Brant Petrie, author of many books, uh, including Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. Dr. Petrie is a distinguished research professor of scripture at the Augustine Institute and received his PhD in New Testament and Ancient Judaism from the University of Notre Dame, author of many other books, including Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, and others. And uh, he is our guest in the next hour. We'll be uh, back with more Cresta in the Afternoon right after this break. From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Very good afternoon to you all. Happy Friday and welcome back for another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. As you are probably aware, Al's been busy this week with our uh, winter pledge drive and we've had a few guest hosts earlier in the week. This is Brian Shanley, Al's producer, just filling in for today's opening and closes and we'll be back to normal next week. And uh, in this hour, we're going to prepare for Advent. Uh, Advent officially kicks off this Sunday, and as you're probably aware, it's the shortest Advent possibly can be, because the fourth Sunday of Advent is Christmas Eve, the next day, Monday, is Christmas Day, and so the fourth week of Advent lasts, you know, one day this week, or one day this year. And so uh, we want to really, you know, hit the ground running with our preparations. And the very first, the for gospel that we'll hear this weekend uh, puts into our ears Jesus' own words of preparation. Be watchful, be alert. Uh, Jesus uses the example of the household in which the Lord of the house has gone away and left his servants in charge, each with his own work. The servants are warned against being asleep on the job, since they do not know when the Lord of the house is coming. They must not make the mistake of thinking that they can be lazy or indifferent in their work. The best way to watch for their master is to be conscientious and active in the work he has given them to do. Uh, really a wonderful way to start this season of waiting. Throughout all the scriptures we'll be hearing, uh, we'll be roused out of whatever laziness, doldrums, or distractions that might have gotten a foothold into us in the past year, helping us not to heed Jesus' call to watch. When we remember the work he has left for us and decided to give fresh energy to it, we will not be caught sleeping at his return whenever that may be. As surely as Jesus came the first time in a manger, he will come again in power and glory. In the meantime, he comes to us in every mass, and the bread and wine as we acclaim, acclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, thanks to Gail Summers for some great commentary there uh, at Catholic Exchange, which we'll have linked for you in the Christy Guest Archives. And we'll be beginning this hour looking at this Advent recipe for readiness with Monsignor Charles Pope, who also, kind of like what I just read from there, points out the somewhat irony that a lot of the readings during Advent aren't 
referencing the first coming of Messiah at Christmas, but actually the second coming. And so we'll connect those with Monsignor Pope. And then we walk the path of prayer with Jesus with Brant Petrie, the author of an outstanding book, Introduction to the Spiritual Life. That's all coming up over the next hour after this news break. Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 1st. It's the Feast of Edmund Campion. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The Holy See's Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Parolin will lead the Vatican's delegation to the COP28 Climate Conference in place of Pope Francis, who continues to recover from a lung infection. Parolin will deliver the remarks originally prepared for the Pope on Saturday. The following day, he will preside over the inauguration of the Interfaith Pavilion. The Israel-Hamas war is raging once again after the truce deal between the two ended. The Israeli military announced today that it has resumed combat in the Gaza Strip, claiming Hamas violated the truce and fired a rocket towards Israeli territory. Israeli airstrikes have been reported in Gaza City, and drones have been reported over southern Gaza. Retired United States Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor is dead at the age of 93. The Supreme Court said O'Connor's cause of death was related to a complication from advanced dementia and a respiratory illness. O'Connor was the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court and was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981. And New York Republican George Santos is no longer a member of Congress. The House voted to expel Santos this morning in an historic 311 to 114 vote, ending his chaotic tenure in Congress. More than 100 Republicans voted in favor of removing Santos, who is now the sixth lawmaker to ever be pushed out of the chamber. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. One of the glories of the liturgical calendar is it reminds us over and over again of the great truths of salvation history, Advent. It's the period of expectation. Uh, We will focus, of course, on the Lord's return, but also, of course, on what's uh, presupposed in his return, and that is, of course, his first coming. Uh, with me right now is Monsignor Charles Pope. He's pastor of Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. He publishes a daily blog uh, at the Archdiocese of Washington website. He's written uh, in pastoral journals, conducted numerous retreats for priests and the lay faithful, has conducted weekly Bible studies in the U.S. Congress and the White House. He was named Monsignor in 2005, and you can follow his work at... Uh, blog.adw.org. That's blog.adw.org. Good to have you with me, Monsignor. Thank you. Good to be here. What do you think is the key word for Advent? What's the concept to keep in mind uh, throughout the four weeks? Well, I ultimately prepare. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, the other idea is that the very word Advent means coming, but prepare for his coming. And the first coming has been fulfilled, as you point out, but uh, it's, it's really the second coming that pre- preoccupies us, at least in the earlier weeks of Lent, I mean, of Advent, yeah. 
Yes, and so I think for for many of us, we're comfortable with the incarnation, the uh, the uh, mm-hmm. virginal conception, the birth mm-hmm. of Jesus, the miracles, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost. Mm-hmm. The return, though, seems spectral mm-hmm. and distant by comparison. It's been mm-hmm. 2,000 years after all. Yeah. And, you know, the the gospel for yesterday's Mass, uh, the Lord was was quite uh, urgent about, you know, you've got to wake <laughs> yes. up, man, and... You know, too, they were they were eating, eating and drinking and getting married. And As stuff, it right was in the, the days of Noah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, you know, he went in the ark and the flood waters came. And two, are, you know, he says it'll be that way now. Two are in the field; one will be taken, the other will be left. I mean, the Lord's saying, you know, you gotta you gotta stay sober about that. Uh, I don't care if it's you know for God, a thousand years is like a watch in the night. Yes. So it's just been a few hours for God. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I think that is a, you have to keep that in mind, don't you? That mm-hmm. it really is. Uh, a very, uh, very different perspective uh, on mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you do you see Advent um, again with the expectation of the Lord's return? How does that tie into the expectation of you might say His return in our own personal death? Yeah, because you know either we're going, He's coming to us or we're going to Him. Yeah. <laughs> and either way, the result is going to be the same. One is the personal judgment that we'll have, and the other is a more general judgment. But, but I, I would simply say that um, it's, it's a day to be sober about and ready for. And you know, too many people have, um, I think, have just t- sort of tamed Jesus. They've they've turned him into kind of a harmless hippie, and he went around saying pleasantries and healing people. Yeah. And, well, that's nice, but uh, he also said some very uh, sobering, tough things, and he had an urgency that many of us lack today. Yeah. Yeah, that urgency, that accountability really does uh, put him in a a different category than just your uh, religious teacher who gives us a few nice instructions for how to live a better life. Um, You point out in in your writing on this, uh, the homily for the first Sunday of Advent, wake up. Uh, What does it mean to wake up? Yeah, I'm using the text that we had yesterday's Mass from, from Romans 13. So St. Paul says, you know you know the time. It's now the hour for you to wake from sleep. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far advanced, the day is at hand. So we gotta, we got to cast off all the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So th- this is what I was tapping into there. And, you know, wake up here, I think, means, first of all, for a lot of us, um, you know, when we're asleep, we're unaware of what's going on around us. And so the first call is to become more aware. And, you know... Um, if we're not careful, we focus on all the dreamy stuff of the world. The, what the Lord wants us to wake up to, do you understand you're in a great battle yeah. between good and evil? You know, you've got to wake up and see that. And it's responsible for most of the casualties that you see around you. Uh, Satan and his minions are about, but so, so are the angels. And you, you're gonna, you need sacraments. You need the proper armor. You need to wake up and realize you really are in a battle. Yeah. And you can't just have another drink or see what's on TV. This is time to wake up and be sober about that. Yeah, know? yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? That waking up means that many of us are sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I think spiritually and morally, a yeah. lot of people are just kind of sleeping. And even even as our culture gets increasingly poisonous and insane, uh, still people are like, well, you know, it's okay. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm still getting my paycheck, and you know. And again, this is the dreamy kind of stuff that um, that I think we engage in. Um, so the idea of waking up is to you know, become alert about the world, what's really going on around you, according to what Scripture says. You know, Scripture is a prophetic interpretation of reality. 
And um, it's telling us what's really going on, you know. Mm-hmm. And we're all focused on, we're majoring in all the minors very often, you know, about politics and yeah. and war. Now, look, there are things to attend to in the world, but sure. at the end of the day, they all need to be tucked under the uh, the main goal, which is that I want to die loving God and my neighbor, right. so I can go home and be with him. Yeah, that's that's the life project. Uh, yeah. Uh, when people wake up and the, the sun hits them, uh, they want to clean up <laughs> because right, yeah. they realize uh, <laughs> they're not quite uh, in, in proper condition. So tell right. us about cleaning up. Yeah, so as I say, I'm again tapping into the, the Paul's letter to the Romans here. He says, not to conduct ourselves in orgies, promiscuity, lust, and to make no provision for the desires of the flesh. So he focuses in there on sexual sins, which are a huge problem today. And we've got to be more clear about that as a church and as individuals, that you know, there's just no room for, in, in our lives for fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexual acts. There's just no place for these things. Um, and uh, we, the only place for sexual intimacy is inside, inside of biblical marriage. Yeah. Just got to be really clear. Now, on the other hand, we don't want to just, as, although Paul is focusing on those, maybe that isn't a, an issue that uh, one of some of our listeners are dealing with. Right. Hopefully mm-hmm. it isn't. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, maybe there's other things. I need to look, I need to look at my anger. I need to look, what am I doing about that? I need to look at, you know, my, my greed. Am I, do I need to be more generous to the poor? There, there could be any number of things that we want to look to our moral condition and kind of clean up. Yeah. You know, I, dealing with uh, younger people who are dealing with sexual sin, um, it's always been what I've always found it hard to figure out how to make it absolutely clear mm-hmm. what the Lord teaches, and at the same time, yeah. let the especially uh, adolescents and going into their twenties, unmarried mm-hmm. men, let them know that they aren't ultimately defined by their falling short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's, how do you handle that? You, I mean, you, I, you hear this all the time in confessions, yeah, so I'm sure you know how to do yeah. it. No, I, I remind a, a lot of them, and also in the pulpit even, you know, that, look, some of these sins are committed in weakness rather yeah. than in malice. Right. And I think the most severe condemnations come upon those who just shake their fists. I will not be told what to do. There's yeah. nothing wrong with this. And so say, at least you're here, and you see that there's something wrong, right. and this, right. there's a beauty in this, and the Lord wants to work with you. And, you know, so this is, a, this is where I, I try to remind people sins. It's a sin of weakness uh, more than malice. But on the other hand, you know, it's something to take seriously yep. you know. no uh waking up uh then you really <laughs> need you got to clean up and then you say sober up Right. Paul says not to conduct ourselves in drunkenness. And, of course, certainly we all know what physical drunkenness involves, you know, and how it makes our mind fuzzy. And and it clearly, um, it's simple drunkenness is to be avoided. But I think here to spiritualize it, too many of us are drunk on the things of the world. Our, our minds are filled with stinking thinking. Yeah. And we're yeah. not focused. And, you know, the real battleground, you know, Al, is, is not just, the, it's not really the flesh. It's, it's our minds. Yes. And... Um, so, you know, there's so many appeals to setting our minds on the things above rather than the things below. Uh, for example, in you know Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by Amen. the renewal of your mind. Yeah. Or one of my favorite ones is from Ephesians 4, where he says, I affirm and testify, you must no longer live like the pagans in the futility of their minds, yes. darkened in understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So we're we're told, you know, that's not the way we're to be living, and yet... Most people spend all kinds of time watching 24-7 news or being filled with the, you know, secular culture and almost no time 
with the Word of God. Yeah. And um, this is a call, if you will, to sober up, to clear our minds from the inebriating things of the world that make us drunk on, in the passing world and keep keep our eyes fit for wisdom. Sophronius, you know, that, a mind that's fit for wisdom, a sober mind. Yeah. Lighten up is the next the recipe, <laughs> in the recipe you've got for us. You know, again, St. Paul says, you know, you're all focused on factions, rivalries, jealousies. He says, you know, skip oh, all yes. that. Wow. And this, this anger in our culture today is really, you know, there are serious things that are dividing us. But, you know, I mean, we're just on a tripwire. People are so easily offended. And what is it, what's the word? Triggered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, why are you so easily triggered? You know, <laughs> why, yeah, can't you, yeah. why, can't, why can't you hear an opposing opinion occasionally? Um, why do you need a safe zone? Come on, come on, lighten up a little. Have yeah. some humility and don't believe everything you think. <laughs> At least investigate the possibility you might need to stay in a longer conversation with people in order to win them to Christ or, you know, and so on. So these this are the is, things. Yeah, and even within the, within the church right now, there are all kinds oh, of factions yeah. developing. Yeah, yeah, serious. It's very serious. Um, and then you say dress up, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell yeah. us about that whole action of yeah. uh, conformity to Christ, uh, yeah. reproducing well, <clears throat> his life in us. You know, frequently in the scriptures, there is this image of a garment. Um, you know, in, in, it's in the book of Revelation. It was given to the bride to wear to wear a beautiful garment, and the, the, the garment is the righteousness of the saints. And likewise, you know, there was a parable about the wedding garment and so on. All of these are there just remind us that the Lord wants to clothe us in his holiness and clothe us in his righteousness. And he's offering us, if you will, this, this great gift of being just clothed in his magnificent beauty and holiness and grace. And so we want to therefore eagerly then accept this from the Lord and let him go to work and begin to clothe us and get us get us all gussied up, so, so to speak, uh, for heaven. So this is, is this the equivalent of St. Paul saying, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live? Yes, it's no longer I who live, but Christ living yeah. in me. Amen. You've got a, a in, in your uh, writing on this uh, first Sunday of Advent, you've got a great line. Uh, the moral life is not imposed it is mm-hmm. imparted. Yeah. And I think this really speaks about the importance of grace in our lives. Could you yeah. elaborate a little bit? Yeah, you know, so often we, we turn the moral uh, vision of the Gospels into this long list of things I've got to do somehow out of my own flesh power, and oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. And so, no, 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 this is, a, the, the salvation, if you will, is, is, uh, is received, and... Um, it's, it's, it's a way of uh, just saying that, again, we, uh, we, we, we want to say that it's a gift. The moral life is God's gift to us. It's not a, you better do this or else. It's not simply a threatening thing. Now, if that's all you got, that kind of fear, go with it, all right? <laughs> but, but, but what you want to do is eagerly run to the Lord and say, wow, you mean you could, you could actually give me the gift to live more chastely, be more kind, less angry? Lord, I'm, I want that gift. And the Lord's offering it as a gift to us. Amen. Monsignor, thank you so much for getting us off to a good beginning for Advent and uh, wonderful talking with you again. Thank you. Thank you. Monsignor Charles Pope, you can follow him at uh, blog.adw.org. We have it uh, linked at our site as well. Father Benedict Groeschel. I usually am operating on the gifts of the Holy Spirit when I don't feel well, even when I'm annoyed, when I'm down and out. During my recovery from the automobile accident, immense numbers of people wrote to me and sent me emails, 50,000. And they told me how helpful they thought my talks on EWTN were to them. I'm delighted, but I want you to know 
I'm nobody's fool. The talks that were helpful, the sentences that were helpful, the phrases that were helpful came from the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the styrofoam packaging came from me. I did that. And styrofoam doesn't amount to very much. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. What is the significance of the anointing oil or chrism during the administration of confirmation? According to the Catholic Catechism, when a Christian is thus anointed, he is marked with a permanent spiritual seal. Anointing in biblical times was rich with symbolism. Oil is a sign of abundance and joy. It cleanses and limbers the body. It is a sign of healing. Think of it being administered to cuts and bruises. It gives radiant beauty and strength. All these features of oil are present in the sacramental life. The pre-baptismal anointing with the oil of catechumens signifies cleansing and strengthening. Anointing the sick signifies healing and comfort. In confirmation and holy orders, the post-baptismal anointing with sacred chrism denotes consecration. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Advent is upon us, and it's always a good time at the beginning of seasons like uh, Lent and Advent to basically reconsider 
uh, how we're doing. Uh, are we making progress uh, in our spiritual life? Do we see ourselves uh, gaining victory over various types of temptation? Uh, are we coming to a greater understanding of the, how to cultivate virtue. My guest, Dr. Bram Petrie, is well known from uh, books that we've discussed on this program before. He got his doctorate in New Testament uh, in ancient Judaism from the University of Notre Dame, and he's presently the Distinguished Research Professor of Scripture at the Augustine Institute. Uh, he's author of books uh, like we've discussed, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, and this magisterial volume, A Catholic Introduction to Scripture, the Old Testament, which he co-authored with Dr. John Bergsma. But Brandt has uh, given us a little bit different treat this time, uh, maybe more personal. It's called Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. And Brandt, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks for being. Thanks for having me back, Al. It's great to be with you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the origin uh, of this book. Um, it's a little bit outside your, your usual uh, framework. Tell yeah. me, tell me about it. Well, it, it basically originated when um, a friend of mine sent me a bunch of books from his personal theological library, and several boxes of them were filled with works of spiritual theology, uh, like classics by St. Catherine of Siena, or St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila. And, and during my doctoral program, I hadn't really focused in that area at all. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really familiar with spiritual theology. And so when I started to read the spiritual classics, like John Clemacus' Latter Divine Ascent, or Thomas Kempis' Imitation of Christ, I was just really completely blown away by what I encountered in the writings of the mystics and the saints and the doctors of the spiritual life. And, and I remember just being transformed by what I was reading and wanting to share it with others. So I taught a class that semester, an elective at the college I was teaching at, on spiritual theology. But I did it from my own perspective, which is, of course, as a Scripture scholar, right? Mm-hmm. I looked at the biblical roots of what the saints were saying. Because one of the things I noticed, Al, that was interesting is, although you have these different streams of spiritual tradition, like especially in the West, right, like Carmelite spirituality and Ignatian spirituality, right, or Dominican spirituality, sure. at the end of the day, they all had one common source, and that was not just the Scriptures in general, but in particular, the, the teachings of Christ, mm-hmm. that Christ Jesus himself is the ultimate spiritual master. And so in this book, what I wanted to do was kind of take the wisdom of the saints, but show people that although there is this diversity, right, within the spiritual traditions of the Church, at the end of the day, the ultimate spiritual master is Christ. So in the book, what I do is I go through the major teachings that you'll find in the writings of the saints about the purgative way, which is the first stage of spiritual growth, and I show you where every one of them comes from, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the teachings of Jesus and the, and the New Testament as well. So this is, uh, so th- this was, was this all brand new to you when you started reading through this, uh, these works of spiritual Yeah, theology? it really was. I gotta, I gotta be honest. I mean, I grew up, I'm a cradle Catholic, so I, I grew up in my basic idea of spiritual a spirituality with, sure. you know, saying your prayer, right? right? right. Well, it was pretty much limited to vocal prayer and participation in the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And when I started to read about the absolute centrality of meditation, for example, in, in, in the spiritual life, which, you know, Teresa of Avila says it's a matter of life and death for all Christians to not just do vocal prayer, but to meditate on the Word of God. Yeah. That really was something I don't remember hearing 
as a child right. growing up in the right. Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, and yet the saints were all in agreement on it. Uh, and not just the saints, but the scriptures as well. I mean, the first, very first psalm, Psalm 1, says, mm-hmm. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. Right. Not just, you know, every Lent or every Easter, but day and night, right? That's it's right. a daily part of the spiritual path. So for me, that, that was really transformative and as I began to study about contemplative prayer, as well as also the teachings of Jesus and the saints on the vices and the virtues especially the capital sins, you know, anger and avarice and lust and gluttony, and the opposing virtues, and practices like Lectio Divina. I just personally found it transformative, and so did my students, as we, as we shared about it in the classroom. So I, I knew back then, it was almost 20 years ago, that one day I would want to put all this together in a book. And so that's what I did in, yeah. in those introductions to spiritual life. That's great. Uh, it's a great introduction, too. I'm enthusiastic about it. I, I'm always looking for you know materials that can be shared with people, and this is certainly a good one. Yeah. And uh, I should mention, too, Chris, yeah, that's Christmas I, is coming up, so it's, it's a good one to buy for Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, this book, I really did try to write it to where no matter where someone is in their own spiritual journey, whether they're literally just getting started in the life of prayer and the life of a Christian, or if they're already well advanced along the path, but maybe they've read the writings of the saints and mystics, but they're not exactly sure, you know, where does John of the Cross get this idea right. of the dark night of the soul from? Or, or where does Lexio Divina come from? Is that medieval idea, or does it actually go back to Scripture? So in this book, what I'm trying to do is take those standard concepts, like the battle of prayer, or the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. or um, Lexio Divina, fasting, almsgiving, and show where are these in the Old Testament, where are they in the teaching of Jesus, and then what are some practical ways we can put them into practice uh, through the wisdom of the saints. Well, let's go over some of the distinctions you make uh, here, your first major realization about the three different kinds of prayer, vocal prayer, meditation, contemplation. Um, uh, I think most of us understand that vocal prayer is, you know, praying with words, uh, it could be memorized, it could be spontaneous. Uh, Meditation, how does meditation differ from contemplation? Oh, okay, this is a great question. Well, if you look at the scriptural use of the term meditation, it's really fascinating, Al. So, for example, I just mentioned um, Psalm 1, right, which is one of the most explicit references yes. to meditation in the mm-hmm. Old Testament. It says that the, the righteous man meditates on the law day and night. So the first aspect of meditation is different, is that it involves a prayerful reading of Scripture. So Scripture is very central to the kind of prayer that's called meditation. But it's fascinating, if you look at the Hebrew word for meditate, the word hagah, it literally means to sigh or to moan. Hmm. So it's not just reading the Word of God, it's sighing over the Word of God. It's like taking it into ourselves and making it a part of us, pondering us, pondering it not just with the mind, but with the heart, right? So the, the ancient Greek translation of that same psalm will translate the word as melotao, and it means to think about, right? So um, meditation specifically involves loving the Lord, not just with our mouths through vocal prayer, through words, but with our minds. Okay. Okay. And yep. taking time to think about God, to think about His Word, uh, it, it really is honestly goes back to the greatest commandment in Judaism, which is the Shema, where Jesus is going to take that commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and He actually adds a line to the commandment. He says to love the Lord your God with all your 
mind. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the Shema is given, you actually see that in context, the way Moses is telling the Israelites to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength, you, know, you might ask, you know, how do I do that? Well, he says, to write his word in your heart and to speak about it day and night, to ponder it in the morning and the evening, to talk about it with your children, to talk about it while you're on the way, when you rise and when you go to sleep. So this kind of um, uh, rhythm of constantly reading and pondering the Word of God is an essential part of the spiritual life, not just for cloistered monks, not just for priests and for nuns, but already in the Old Testament, for the laity, for everyone. And, um, and, and Christ, of course, is going to continue that in his teaching to make that the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Because, look, think about it, Al. If we love someone, what do we do? We think about them. We, think we don't just them. Yeah. talk to them. We, we think about them, right? Yeah. We, we remember them. We dwell and, on and them. And by contrast, yeah. If yeah. You, we dwell on them. That's right. Mm. Uh, and by contrast, if we don't ever think about someone, the likelihood is that we don't probably love them all that much, right? So this is about cultivating the love of God by learning to love His Word. And then contemplation differs in what respect? Yeah, this is a great question. So if you look at contemplation or contemplative prayer in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, what you're going to see is, whereas meditation is, so to speak, focused on thinking about God, honoring God with the mind, Uh, contemplative prayer is going to be more focused on encountering God with the heart. Hmm. And the metaphor that will frequently be used uh, for this is the image of the gaze, of looking at God with, so to speak, the eyes of the heart, Mm -hmm. a gaze of love that is fixed on the face of God, the invisible face of God. You see this especially in the Old Testament with the figure of Moses, right? So we tend to think of Moses primarily as the great lawgiver, right, or the great liberator, and he's certainly those things. But in Jewish tradition, Moses is also the greatest of the mystics, and the saints and spiritual classics describe him as a master of contemplative prayer, because it'll, it tells us, like in Exodus 33, that Moses would regularly... Uh, not just talk to God, but he would go into the inner tabernacle, into the tent of meeting, and there he used to speak to God, quote, face to face, yeah, yes, as yes. a man speaks to his friend. Yeah, now this, this image in Hebrew, the, the word face literally means panim, or literally is panim, and it, it doesn't just mean face, it means presence right? Like the bread of the presence is the bread of the panim, the bread of the face of God. And so contemplative prayer isn't, it's not so much about talking to about God, but about encountering God. It's the desire to see God face to face, which means requiring time, making time to simply enter into His presence, and be with God. I'm sure you know, you're familiar with that famous example of this from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It talks about the peasant in the Curie of Ars, I think it was in uh, uh, that parish of St. John Vianney, who used to go and just sit before the yes. tabernacle, right? In the, in, and he, and they, you know, his friends would ask him, what are you doing there for hours? You must, have, you must have a lot to talk to God about. And he describes his prayer very simply as, I look at him, and he looks at me. <laughs> So that mutual gaze, that silent gaze of love, that's really, that's what Moses is doing in in the Old Testament, and that's also what King David describes in the the Psalms, right, the desire to gaze upon the Lord in His temple, to seek the face of God, uh, to, to listen for God, to encounter God like Elijah does 
on the mountain in the silence, right? In the still small voice or the silent voice of God. So contemplative prayer is, in a sense, a kind of prayer that transcends words. Hmm. It even transcends thoughts. It really is a gift of that silent adoration of God. Brent Holt, that is very good. We'll come back, continue conversation. My guest, Dr. Brent Petrie. Sure. The book is Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. Uh, we'll come back and continue the conversation. There's really uh, some outstanding uh, material here that will help uh, ground you and actually uh, ex- increase your expectation for knowing God. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom webinar. That's catholichom webinar. See you there. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter Him in the Eucharist in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Do you celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life? 
It's an approach to family spirituality that can help every Catholic family encounter Christ more meaningfully at home and experience their faith as the source of the warmth in their homes. The Liturgy of Domestic Church Life has three parts. The right of Christian relationship helps families love each other with Christ's sacrificial love. The right of family rituals helps families develop Christian attitudes toward work, play, relationships, and faith. And the right of reaching out helps families learn to serve each other and the world just like Christ. When you live out the liturgy of domestic church life, you bring the grace of the Eucharist home and let Christ transform everything about the way you live and love each other. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Brent Petrie, taking a look at his book, Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. Brent, you often hear people say, I don't think I'm making progress uh, in the spiritual life. I I confess the same sins, and I, I feel like it's just the same old thing over and over and over again. Should people expect to make progress? Yes, according to Jesus, according to the saints, that absolutely is the case. Yes. Yeah. In other words, making progress is the norm. If you look at all the writings of the spiritual classics, they're going to say over and over again that you know that the spiritual life or spirituality isn't just some kind of you know state of being or an idea. Right. It really is a path. It's it's a way. Jesus calls it the hodos, the road, and. Whenever you're on a road, you're either moving forward or you're moving backward, right? (laughs) No one just sits on the side of a road, right, and does nothing, right? If they want to make any progress, they have to go forward. And so even the very image that Jesus uses to describe the the, the path of discipleship, the teaching that he's giving his disciples, uh, presupposes that you're in motion. You're either going forward or you're going back. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but at least for me, I think a lot of people have had the experience of feeling like they're kind of, uh, maybe uh, spiritual life is more of a revolving door. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you're just going in circles rather than making progress. And I think part of the reason for that is a lot of times we have a ver- we have very vague notions about what the spiritual path that Jesus gave his disciples actually entailed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this book, what I was trying to do is highlight, isolate, and highlight the basic elements of the spiritual teaching of Christ as the saints have highlighted them for beginners in particular, right? Things like the essential nature of repentance, uh, of keeping commandments, the kinds of temptations, the three principal temptations we face, uh, basic disciplines like prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, but also, too, the, the, the capital sins that are usually our main obstacles for making any progress, like pride and avarice and gluttony. What Jesus not only says about uh, rooting those vices out, but also how to uh, grow in the opposing virtues uh, to those particular vices. So at least for me, I, I, a lot of it for many years was just fuzzy. I didn't have, really have a clear concept of, well, what are the seven capital sins? What is, what is the rationale for the commandments? Why are they important? Yeah. How are they not just rules? Right. Uh, and then how can I live them out in my daily life through prayer and fasting and almsgiving, those basic disciplines that Jesus gives to us? Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the relationship between vices and virtues. Um, are, yeah. are, are vices the flip side of the virtues? Absolutely, yeah. No, it's very interesting. If you look at, if you look at the, uh, the spiritual writers on this point, 
uh, you know, one of the things they'll frequently do is they'll not only isolate the so-called seven deadly sins that most of us have heard of, right? Pride, envy, anger, avarice, lust, gluttony, and sloth. They will also talk about, in fact, they almost always talk about them in tandem, opposing virtues, those seven opposing virtues, <laughs> humility, mercy, meekness, generosity, chastity, temperance, and diligence. And what's fascinating is that if you look at these, uh, it's, it's really clear in the writings of saints, like St. Ignatius of Loyola, for example, in his spiritual exercises, they're going to say that not only, sh- if you want to make progress, not only should you focus on rooting out those vices, but you also need to focus on growing in the opposing virtues. In other words, you don't want to just create a, an empty space in the soul or in the heart, yeah. but you actually want to exercise the opposite virtues to fill the vacuum that will be created by rooting out the vices. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, um, several of the ancient writers, like Gregory the Great, will actually point to a teaching of Jesus on this very fact. This is the so, seven evil the spirits parable? passage? Yeah, yeah the yeah. seven <laughs> evil spirits. That's right. This right. Very, very mysterious parable of Jesus where he talks about about how when an in- unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes and he finds several, seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter the, the house and they dwell there, and the state of the person is worse than it was before. Now, this is an ominous parable in many ways, but it's also very revealing, because what Jesus is doing is basically comparing the human soul to a house that you know, has some demons that are dwelling within it. Mm-hmm. And this imagery of these seven evil spirits is going to become a basic foundation that's not only rooted in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, in the passage a passage from Proverbs, chapter 26, it talks about seven abominations dwelling in the heart of a man, uh, but then also it will be used to describe uh, as uh, the development of these seven capital sins, these particular sins that we are all inclined to, with which we all struggle, and which we have to battle against if we want to make progress in the spiritual life. And one of the reasons this is so important is, unfortunately, at least for me, growing up as a Catholic, a lot of us, I think, kind of inherited the tradition of examining our consciences according to the Ten Commandments, right? Which is great. It's a wonderful practice. But at a certain point, you know, it can (laughs) seem a little strange. Like, you know, okay, okay, I haven't worshipped any cows today, so idolatry is off the list. Right. Uh, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't commit murder, right? Uh, You know, I haven't lied in court, born false false witness. So if we examine our hearts according to the the Ten Commandments, which is important, it can we can kind of come away thinking I'm doing pretty good. Okay, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but if we but if we go deeper and we begin to look at those seven capital sins that are talked about in the Book of Proverbs and also central in the spiritual tradition, things like pride, anger. Or envy. Ah, oh, well, now, now yeah. I might not come away looking quite so good. Like I might realize that there's a lot more to root out of my heart than at first glance. And so, in the book, what I do is I take you through. This is one of my favorite parts of it. What Jesus says about each one of those capital sins. What Jesus teaches about pride. What Jesus teaches about anger. What Jesus teaches about envy or avarice or those often unspoken sins, right? Sloth and gluttony. A lot of people don't even realize these are sins. Yeah. I'm yeah. from South Louisiana. We do not talk about gluttony very often <laughs> in a negative fashion, right? I mean, so, but, but realizing that these are vices that need to be uprooted from the, the heart, that Jesus describes the heart as a kind of a tree that bears fruit, and, and realizing we have to cut off those 
evil branches and then help the tree to bear uh, good fruit. This is an essential part of growth in the spiritual life and of making progress. And I think one of the reasons many people often feel like they're not making any progress is because they may not be familiar with just how high the bar is that Mm -hmm. Jesus sets for the the demands of virtue that he makes on his disciples. Now, of course, it's always with the help of his grace, right? We don't do it with our own power. But he does call us to imitate him, uh, not just in rooting out sin, but also growing in virtue. I think the envy, you mentioned envy earlier, uh, the, the opposing virtue to envy is mercy, and I think that was yeah. that would be one of those, huh? How, how does that? How yep. is that? Doesn't it's not immediately I'm, apparent to me how mercy is the opposing yeah, no, virtue is, of envy. This really surprised me when I was looking at the uh, when I was looking at the, the the scripture roots of each of the capital sins, you know, um, and I got to envy, and I found great saints like Saint Thomas Aquinas and others saying that actually the opposing virtue to envy is mercy. And the, one of the reasons for that is you have to make sure you're clear on exactly what envy involves. So if you go back to the Old Testament, the basic definition of envy would be actually a kind of form of an irrational sadness over another person's good fortune. Huh. The key example of this is, is Cain and Abel, right? Yeah. So if you go back to the Old Testament, what does Abel do? Um, what does Cain do? He envies Abel, not because Abel has done anything against Cain whatsoever, but for just for the fact that Abel was blessed by God, that God had regard for Abel. And Cain was saddened by his brother's good fortune, like his being blessed in the eyes of God, because he was loved himself more than his neighbor. Well, St. Thomas and other saints are going to say that mercy is the opposite. Whereas envy grieves over another person's good, good fortune, mercy grieves over another person's misfortune. And whereas envy is rooted in selfish love, like to, I love my more than my neighbor, mercy is rooted in the love of neighbor. So what the, what the saints will say is that if you struggle with envy, one of the things you have to do is actually practice intentionally practice the virtue of showing mercy to others, others who have hurt you, others who may be doing uh, better than you, who may have been blessed by ways that you haven't been blessed, to pray for them, to rejoice in the good that God has shown them, but also to show love towards someone who has done wrong to you, right? So Mm. it's it's an interesting—it's kind of the supreme exercise of the love of neighbor, effectively. So envy is rooted in a love of self, a very profoundly disordered love of self, and so it's counteracted by showing mercy to others. Um, And, of course, each one of these virtues that I'm discussing in the book like mercy, they're going to pop up in the Beatitudes, right? So Jesus has a Beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mm-hmm. And you'll see this also, too, in Luke 6, when, when Jesus gives the famous command to love our enemies, right? Um, in that context, in Luke's, uh, in Luke's version of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, it's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, what does Jesus say? He says, love your enemies, do good, Lend expecting nothing in return, and be merciful, even yeah. as your Father is yeah. merciful. So how is the Father merciful? Well, it's that He loves those, even those who don't love Him, right? He, he, he loves those who hate Him. He, he loves without expecting anything in return. He makes the rain fall on the good and the wicked alike. And so 
for Jesus then, uh, mercy, the, the, this virtue of mercy, is really an imitation of God's love for those who don't love him that we're supposed to carry out in ourselves. And if you think about it, what does an envious person do? Like, oppose that to envy. Uh, envious person allows anger and hatred to kind of, they ruminate on it, right? They dwell on it precisely because what they bear ultimately in their hearts is not love for neighbor, but hatred of neighbor, a desire mm-hmm. to see a na- the neighbor do, uh, you know, uh, to not have good fortune, yeah. to have misfortune. Yeah. And you'll, you'll see this all over and over again in the Scriptures. But for me, it was, that was kind of a, re- a real revelation to pit those two uh, against one another, yeah. to see those as opposing, envy and mercy, as no. opposed to other other of the, um, the verses, virtues and vices. That you might think of uh, more obviously, like the opposite of lust would be chastity, right? Sure. Or the law opposite of gluttony would be temperance. This was something that was a little bit of a revelation. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, you know, being raised Catholic, you're told to say your prayers. Uh, how is that not the battle of prayer? Oh, wow, yeah, the battle of prayer. No, <laughs> well, um, it is a battle of prayer, because the reality is, um, as Abba Agathon, one of the fathers that I quote in the book, says, prayer is warfare to the last breath. <laughs> That's a quote from, from one of the early Desert Fathers. Because even vocal prayer is a battle, because our flesh rebels against the effort, right, the attentiveness uh, that it takes to focus our minds and our hearts and our bodies, not on earthly things, but on God. And so in the book, um, you'll see, I, I take you through in a chapter called The Battle of Prayer, several key passages from uh, both the Old Testament and the New that really exemplify this. But for me, the one that was the most fascinating was the story of Jacob yeah. wrestling, wrestling with, with God, God. Mm-hmm. at night. Right? Yeah, this one's fascinating. You know, the story that Jacob's alone at night, and this man appears and wrestles with him till the break of day. And, and Jacob says, you know, I'm not going to let you go unless you give me a blessing. And so the, the man he's wrestling with changes his name to Israel, saying, you've wrestled with God and with men, and you've prevailed. But then he, he wounds him, right? Yeah. He leaves yeah. him limping for the rest of his life. Well, this, this, this mysterious passage from Genesis 32 is going to go on to be a kind of paradigm, a paradigmatic example of the struggle of prayer, right? That just as Jacob uh, encounters God in the night alone, so too, when we encounter God in prayer, it isn't just uh, filled with good feelings and consolation. There's also a battle there. Yes. God himself encounters us and even can leave us, so to speak, wounded and blessed at the same time. Grant, thanks once again. Great talking with you, and wonderful job with the book, too. Uh, we recommend it. Thanks, Al. Dr. Bram Petrie, it's called Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. It's a wonderful, uh, it goes quite deep, actually. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got to vent. Is this so? 
It's all theory, somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's all theory, it's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Thanks for joining us over the last two hours. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on all of those conversations. We'll have Brant Petrie's book available for you, of course, Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus, as well as uh, Detective J. Warner Wallace's book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls, and we'll be back Monday with more on Cresta in the Afternoon. Lots of great guests lined up for next week. We'll be continuing our preparation for Advent. Also, uh, looking at the latest in the church news. Uh, there's been more developments in Germany that, that we'll be exploring next week. And hopefully we'll be talking with Father Robert Spitzer. He's got an outstanding new book, Science at the Doorstep to God. It's the most comprehensive scientific treatment of God and the afterlife to date. And we're just working with him to see exactly when we'll be uh, speaking with him. Until we are there, have a great rest of your evening. Have a great weekend and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.